0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the open door policy, how you interact with your supervisor, or as I've sometimes called it, the door is only as open as the mind inside the office. inappropriate conversations is now on stitcher you can listen to this show on your iphone android phone kindle fire and other devices with stitcher what is stitcher stitcher is smart radio for your smartphone you can find it in your app store or at stitcher.com it's a way of listening to shows anywhere you go stitcher smart radio is the smarter way to listen to radio the door is only open as the mind inside the office. What exactly does that mean? Well, I want to spend a little time talking about the relationship of the individual worker with supervisor, that upward sort of relationship. Not uh, you're the boss and how do you manage your people or any of that. You can find books galore and, and information online like crazy about you know, how to do better in your work and how to get a better performance review and how to score the big raise or the big promotion. I'm not going to take that approach at all. I want, look, I want to look at it from the other perspective, and I'm not going to talk really even one bit about what I do for a living today. I have a great relationship with my boss. The complaints I'm going to register here are from a previous position, and even where I've got good things to say, it just won't happen to be about my current situation. But I do want to talk a little bit about one person that I met in the place that I currently work who inspired in my mind this thought process, because I've had good supervisors and bad supervisors every place I've been, but inspired this moniker that the door is only open as the mind inside the office. Um, This individual was very proud of his open door policy. I didn't work with him long. In fact, it wasn't really long after I switched jobs that this individual left the company, but my dealings with him led me to realize that you can be very proud of the access you provide to your employees, even employees throughout the organization, but if I come into your office to present you a problem, and I already know when I get there what your answer is going to be, and your answer always plays out exactly as I expected it to be, what was the point in making the trip? If your mind is made up and I can't possibly influence you, well, then why would, I, why would I spend the time and energy trying? It's almost an IQ test for me that I fail by going through that particular open door. Now, there are times when supervisors have their hands tied. But let's be honest, there are very few jobs where there isn't some collaboration, there isn't some art to the science of what's being done. Even in areas like, I would assume, um, surgery, where... There's some very clear things that need to be accomplished, and there's probably a lot of wrong ways to do a surgery. There still are variations in how surgery is done. There's an art to that particular science. So this notion of of the closed-minded individual can provide all the access he wants to uh, is essentially about taking away collaboration. So there's two ideas I want to sort of emphasize today. One is this kind of idea that you're in collaboration with your boss, whether he likes it or she likes it or not and whether you like it or not. So make the most of it. This isn't even a just deal with it kind of speech. Make the most of it. And the other thing is that your boss, you, know, you can only grade your boss on the performance review that you've been given. Now, again, I'm kind of blessed right now. I'm in a job where we've all, we've all kind of got the same scale. Everyone's got the same particular set of guidelines and the particular set of goals. The goals vary from person to person but we're all essentially marching to the same group of competencies. Therefore, I do kind of know what my boss has expected of him by his boss and what his boss has expected of him by his boss. So I've got an advantage there. But I've worked in companies where the performance review process and the goals and expectations were very different from position to position. And you'd have somebody supervising somebody where his accountability for the work that his employees were doing was really pretty paper thin. Right, and I think if you're a boss, you've got to understand that unless your employees know what it is that's expected of you, unless you let them in a little bit, they're going to judge you based on the same review document, the same set of competencies that you use to judge them. Therefore, if your particular job doesn't call for you to be that actively involved in the day-to-day operations of what they do, well, you might want to find a way to let them know. Otherwise, they may decide they're not as committed to your success as they need to be for you to truly be successful because they may decide that you're not as good at your job as you should be based only on the fact that they only know the expectations that you hold over them. So that's essentially this idea of of opening doors and the open door policy and interacting with your supervisor. And it's, you know, perhaps practical advice this time of year When a lot of students are getting out of college and getting out of high school and taking summer jobs and people are graduating from university uh, for good and getting that first, quote unquote, real job in whatever their field of study might be. And it's a pretty good time to be thinking in terms of, hey, one year from now, if I start a job now and I get reviewed on a truly annual basis, one year from now, I'm going to be sitting down and having a conversation about what my work performance is. And it's really naive to think that the only aspect of that work performance that matters is the goals and expectations that were placed in front of me during my probationary period. Because there's another set of goals and expectations that I need to understand to be truly effective. And that's what my boss is dealing with and what he's supposed to be accomplishing. I'm going to use the male pronoun throughout here because uh, most of the examples that I want to cite happen to be men. One of the best bosses I've ever had, however, was a woman. And I'll mention her briefly at the start and then kind of go into the the other examples the rest of the way. She hired me into what had been my second real job, still in high school, and the one where I took on the most responsibility. And a lot of the reason I took on that responsibility was because of her leadership. She had the big picture in mind. She wanted to be promoted. She understood that if she was going to run an entire district of movie theaters, that she had to leave in her wake. People capable of running the movie theater that she was currently in and demonstrate a pattern of actually leaving effective future leaders in charge of every movie theater that she'd ever been in before that or that she would be in the future in this journey toward being a supervisor and being in charge of an entire area or region. To my knowledge, she was successful the last I met with her. She moved out of the state that I was in into another state with the same chain taking on, instead of a twin cinema responsibility, a multiplex responsibility. And a lot of that was that she was a very good planner, didn't take the downtime that is really truly baked into the movie theater experience for granted, where even if you've got a multiplex, there's going to be moments when you don't have a movie about to start or about to let out. And she did a good job of organizing her team and managing that time to where difficult and really um, unhappy tasks that had to be done uh, using Brasso on brass stanchions and cleaning popcorn poppers inside, out, underneath, and back. So not the cleaning the cooking area, but actually the the maintenance sort of cleaning that you would do. Uh, occasionally ripping out the entire fountain area and, and getting the lines as clean as can be and make sure that nothing's going wrong in the, in the soda pop serving part of the theater. She had all that work done during normal business hours and leveraging the time available, especially in a twin cinema where two movies are starting and there's usually uh, an hour in between each set of show times, where tasks can be performed. And she was able to lead that in a way that we were all in this together. It was us as a team, and it was, quote-unquote, our theater. Well, how do you get that? The only way you get to the point of people thinking of this, this particular job, this business as being ours and not just yours I'm an employee. I come in out of nowhere. I don't have any experience working in movie theaters. My chief qualifications are that I wanted to work and I loved movies. So that doesn't really necessarily make you the best popcorn popper around. It doesn't give you a tremendous amount of skill counting down a cash register on the fly. These are things that I had to learn on this job. But you have to give up a little bit of your power and control. You have to cast a vision But then you have to allow others' creativity to come into it in order for that joint ownership to occur. One of the best examples I've heard recently of this was when the actor Michael Emerson uh, from Person of Interest and Lost did an interview on the Nerdist podcast. This is just a couple of months ago at the most. And in that interview, truly a discussion about the craft of acting. And discussing, in particular, the audition process, Emerson said something to the effect of he saw his role as an actor, not so much as somebody who was a performer begging for a gig, hoping somebody, quote unquote, gives him a job, but as a handyman coming in to help a director and a writer solve problems. Now, that can be tricky when you're helping a director solve a problem he doesn't know he has. But a lot of times the audition process is truly a problem solving venture. I don't know who we're going to cast in this particular role. I'm not sure that the people that we've seen so far are right for the part. And what Emerson would do, you know, partly to help him learn lines and bring creativity into the audition process, to bring something to the character was to do his part, to identify uh, what he thought maybe the role needed, but also to listen, pay attention to what the director says. So you've taken the script from the writer. The writer's feedback is in place and you've decided what you're going to do with that. That's not enough. You now have to listen to the director and follow his direction and try things different ways and see if that doesn't inspire you to try something in yet another different way that neither you nor the director had seen previously in the writer's words and present options. Be somebody who can, as a handyman, come in and nail down a part for someone. Again, not beg for the gift of a role being conferred, but nail down on your own steam, this problem solving aspect. And that again, only works if the director is willing to provide that direction. Well, what is that direction? A direction is giving up authority to the actor. On the one hand, it's telling the actor what to do. So there is a tremendous amount of authority invested in that director's role, but how does he actually leverage it? By asking the actor to do something, to try this out, to show it to me this way. Once more with feeling. And the actor, by taking that conferred power, can deliver something truly collaborative. In every business where I've ever been truly successful, it's been on some level of collaboration. It's been the managing editor of the newspaper willing to listen to a copy editor when he says, We're making a big mistake here. There's a whole side of this story we haven't even asked about yet. And not say, Hey, you're fresh out of school, you're here to write captions and headlines, shut up and get back to work. That would be an example of a bad result. But a good result, you know, people listen to each other, understanding that you've hired not just somebody for a task to be performed, but for their creative potential. And if you have hired well, that creative potential is greater than you know. If the first two bosses I had when I worked in real jobs were women, and one of them was an outstanding boss, and the other one was, you know, forgettable, for want of a better word, where were the negative experiences? How did things turn for me when I switched from the newspaper business, for example, over into retail? Well, working in the record store, in the mall, that sort of thing, or even in the bookstore and in the mall. One of the things that I noticed right up front, kind of in that regard, was that there was a lot of personality. I mean, I wasn't really expecting it. When you're bagging groceries in a grocery store, personality is not a factor here. You know, you go where you're told to go, you do what you're told to do. It's as simple as that. And I was used to the personality and the personal interaction in a movie theater, but why wouldn't you? Because it's a job where by design there's going to be an hour or so every day, maybe several hours a day, where there aren't customers to help, where there aren't tasks to be performed. Because, you know, if it's a long film, uh, the customer is going to be inside a room, occupied, doesn't want to be bothered, doesn't want to be interrupted. So you have that time to interact, but in retail, I was kind of caught off guard by how many judgments were coming my way, and just to cite kind of a few examples, because I ran into um, you know type A, type B personalities, uh, master manipulators. One of the few times in my life, I felt like I was the I felt I had a good understanding of what prejudice truly is. I get to that story in just a minute, but I think it's important to understand the theory that I have that my success is all about my boss's success. And sometimes that means you're protecting the boss from himself or protecting him from his boss or protecting both of you from circumstances beyond your control, weather, irate customers, things of that nature. Sometimes it means that you're providing the backup. You're providing the strength, the consistency that allows other people in the organization to take risks. Now, it's interesting that those can be people who work for you or your peers But it also can be your boss or it can be his boss. I always liken it to be sort of like like the relief pitcher that if you know what I can deliver, if I am consistent enough in what it is I do, if I'm on some level actually even predictable, then it's possible for my boss and even my my coworkers to take risks where it makes sense knowing that at some point they will hand off the situation to me and have a reasonably good idea of what I'm going to be able to do. The relief pitcher. So your starting pitcher in a, in a major league baseball game, come in, if he doesn't get through the fifth or sixth inning, then he's failed completely. But at any point after that seventh inning or even during that seventh inning, it's okay for that person to exert 100% effort, really put it all out there and not be able to effectively pitch much further because a good baseball team is going to have a quality relief pitcher who's capable of stepping in. At times I've been that relief pitcher who's been situational there's times when you want Greg going to the bank or behind the cash register, and there's times when you don't, and so it's situational. There are times when I'm uh, asked in, in my current position to speak in front of groups of people to explain policies or procedures or to give a status update of sort of the state of things or where we stand on a particular goal, but there's also times when I, I'm not called to do that, and I, I always view that as a relief pitcher mentality. This is not the situation. Either from a game perspective or from a batter perspective, we want to put that particular pitcher on the mound. That's okay. But being in the bullpen, essentially being out there, provides the ability for somebody to really tap themselves out, to really overinvest, to over to take a few chances. Because in a lot of businesses, it's the chances that ultimately yield the, the big strides forward. You actually have to deliver three outs an inning. To be successful in baseball and in any business, you've got eight hours a day, or if you're a store, however many hours a day you're open, you have to deliver the the day to day grind, so to speak. But once you've assured that you can cover that territory, innovation comes from something that goes above and beyond that. And I found personally as a boss, it's much more difficult to be innovative when you don't have confidence in what the people who directly report to you are going to do. So I try to be that guy, but then sometimes you actually have to just flat out get in the way. You have to take the lead and there's two ways that works and in each way it's crucial to know how your boss is measuring his own success because the first thing you have to do is to make sure that if you're covering more territory than you're used to covering that you're doing it in a way that it doesn't just do what's right for your performance review or your development or your esteem but it serves his purposes as well. And the other thing is understanding what's going to get him in trouble. Where's that line where your actions, your making a change and doing something slightly differently because you've been asked to take the lead is not going to get a positive result. Is just going to lead this individual into trouble because if you do nothing more than keep your boss out of trouble, well then you're probably going to be at least marginally successful. So, I want to cite a couple of good examples and bad examples and then kind of come back to this idea of collaboration and how it works. Because I think for some people, they wouldn't accept the idea that any sort of relationship in work uh, could be collaborative unless you're equals. Collaboration is something you do with somebody that you're on a level footing with. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. In fact, a lot of the best work that I've done has cut – Across levels, across tenures, across departments, where people who've got a bigger commitment to doing the right thing than to doing what the policy and procedures say they should, who know their place not in a way that limits their behavior, but know their place in the sense of the much bigger picture. My son looked me in the eyes the other day and asked, Pa, when's this war going to be over? I answered him, That one day his children and his children's children will look back and know that four warriors stood and fought and answered geeky trivia so that children everywhere could be free. The names of those heroes fresh on their minds, their tongues, and their tattoos. Omar from Costa Rica, Roe from Washington, and of course their fearless leader, Commander Jason. I'm Kevin from Canada, and this is Atomic Trivia War 9000. ATW9K. For a couple of years in the movie theaters, after my hiring manager had moved on to another state to manage a a different part of the chain, I came back from college, actually for a couple of years and a couple of Christmas breaks, as essentially a free agent. I'd gotten to know the executive leadership, the regional director, the district team leader, pretty well from my time in the theater. Because I knew them reasonably well and they knew that I was coming back, I essentially said, hey, put me wherever you want me. Um, It doesn't matter. Especially in the summer, I was willing to work multiple places it didn't bother me if i had you know one shift in one location and another on the completely opposite side of town and literally it gave them the ability because i'd risen in the ranks in high school to the level of being an assistant manager it gave them the ability to bring me back knowing that i had a certain level of responsibility and experience and competency to where if they needed to cover from maternity leaves if they needed to fill in where a particular manager was having difficulty hiring his staff if they need to just put somebody in as a projectionist on the midnight movie, I was their guy. Plug and play, wherever you need me to go. And so the first one of those um, summer times, not the first Christmas, but the first summer time where I was going to be in place for a while, I thought the first assignment I had was probably going to last because I was in this theater and there was a couple things going on. They were really ripping up the place. They were doing all kinds of work, relaying pop lines. Uh, doing even some work, uh, the engineers doing some work in the projection booth. And I just got the impression that the manager wasn't really in charge. He didn't have a grip on things. And it seemed to me like it made sense for me to be there. So I I was working as if that was going to be a permanent assignment because this was the first time. I was not, even though the offer was put me wherever you want me, I wasn't necessarily used to the idea of working a shift here and then a shift across town and then a shift back here again. But one of the things that I think you've got to figure out, and one of the challenges you almost have to anticipate, if you're going to be effective in a workplace, is what do you do when your boss is screwing up? Again, we have this notion, this very kind of old-fashioned idea. Boss is right, he gives the orders, I execute them. If I do a good job of executing them, I get a good review. If I do a bad job, I get a bad review. But where would we be as a country right now if there were more employees who are part of our banking economy who didn't just follow orders? who actually were willing to say, this is wrong and you shouldn't do it. And the example that I'm going to use is the boss of this particular store, the manager that I was assigned to the first time, was one of the midnight movie locations. And it's a little bit tricky when you've got a midnight movie, because when the bank deposit is ready to go at the end of the night, it's going to be 30, 45 minutes after the last showtime has started. So that might be a movie that started at 9.30 or 10 o'clock, It could be 1030 or 11 o'clock before you're ready to go to the bank. And a decision has to be made about how you're going to go. Well, the smart thing to do, if you're going to do an evening banking policy, and this is a twin theater, so this is not a a movie theater that's big enough that the Brinks truck is just going to come by and pick up the bags. You've got to deal with this on your own. But the smart move is to send two cars and to send at least two people and go as a group. So you're not leaving anybody alone with the money, for one thing. You've got to worry about internal theft. But the other thing is you're not going to leave an employee who's vulnerable. You've got a witness. You've got somebody who can honk a horn or flash a light if something suspicious is happening. And when you have a midnight movie, it raises the question of when was our last showtime? Is the last showtime the 9 or 10 o'clock showing of the regular first run new to theaters movie? Or is the last showtime when Heavy Metal or Night of the Living Dead is over? Or Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Or you know, whatever you're showing at midnight. When do you go to the bank? And this particular manager had made a decision that he wasn't going to go to the bank at night at all on midnight movie nights. Now I wasn't questioning his judgment. This was a judgment call that, that was really his to make. But he also didn't like locking the safe because he had a hard time with the combination, found the entire combination thing to be a big pain in the butt, and he just sort of put it on day lock, meaning that if you were smart enough to guess right about which way to turn, turning a quarter or a half way on the dial would essentially unlock the safe. You didn't need a combination. It wasn't actually really ever locked. And in some cases, we we're doing pretty good business. He might leave five, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 in that safe that way. And so what do you do? Here you are, you're an employee. In my case, you're a new employee who's in a position of authority. So you've been dropped in here reporting straight to this guy where everyone else theoretically is answerable to you. Do you call the boss out? Do you call him out publicly? Do you pull him aside privately? Do you call his boss behind his back? Do you say nothing? What do you do? Well, the last thing I wanted to do was to create an environment where there would be any encouragement whatsoever for internal theft or an armed robbery to happen. So I said something and I said it fairly directly. And when he chose to ignore me, I went uh, through a policy for the next couple of weeks of locking the safe behind his back, turning at that extra two or three turns to where the combination would have to be undone. And I actually included volunteering to lead the team, not the individual, but the team of cars that would take the deposit myself and that we would find a time to make that happen, whether that be after the midnight movies in the, in the dead of night, two, three in the morning or first thing the next morning, bright and early, before anybody had any reasonable expectation that the movie theater would even be open. they didn't like that much. It created some conflict. But I wasn't the one to get him in trouble with his boss, the district supervisor. He was the one. Because when he ultimately picked up the phone in frustration and said, this guy's got to go, he's, he's not working with me, he's not doing what I want, he had to explain what it is he wanted and what it is that wasn't being done. Now part of the reason he had to explain that was that I told him, hey, I'm not going to call you out in front of your boss. My job is to help make you successful. So I'm not going to pick up the phone and rat you out, but I'm also not going to lie. And you need to understand that. If you choose to say something about me, it best be the truth, because I'm coming back at you with the truth. And so when he was asked directly, point blank, what happened, I think he realized at that point in time he'd probably stepped in a little bit. And he was starting to smell what he'd stepped in, because he was going to have to explain himself either with a really well-crafted, bulletproof sort of lie, or he was going to have to explain himself in a way that was essentially going to expose the fact that he really wasn't making very wise decisions here. And it was probably a good idea that I was in that store. They ultimately made a change there, rotated managers into different places, and I ended up rotating into a different part of town. But at that moment in time, I think that took some courage. And the courage that it took was the courage to be able to manage upward. What do you do? when your boss is not doing what needs to be done. And if you can't act when it's a small matter, well, then that's okay. All of us make mistakes. All of us have quirks. Creativity and collaboration is about giving people room to explore, but not when it puts people in danger, not when it is essentially equipping anybody who gets lucky enough to case this theater and notices that we're not going to the bank like we used to and to come in looking for trouble. I just wouldn't wanna be the guy in the office that day when an armed robbery might occur. And he opens up for that. But he's not the worst boss I ever had. And I'll tell that story just to offer up the idea that this doesn't always end well. This isn't always successful. You're not always gonna be in a position to succeed. The worst boss I ever had was probably the first time in my working life that it dawned on me that I was actually being the target of some sort of reverse discrimination I don't know which way to describe it. This individual had uh, gender and identity issues and questions that he was sorting out. I don't have an opinion about that. I didn't have an opinion about it then. I still don't now. He was a minority, and his taste in music was very different from mine. And one of the things I always sort of looked to when I got a new district supervisor is it was a good thing in the music store if that person was interested in what I liked and interested in sharing what he or she liked, but it was a bad thing when that became some sort of primary issue when an assumption was made that this person doesn't listen to a lot of gospel music or a lot of R&B music, therefore he's probably a racist. And that's kind of where this problem occurred with this particular supervisor. I'd had lots of managers before and, and district team leaders before where I wasn't on the same page. Some liked dance music a lot more than I did. Some of them liked hair metal more than classic rock so that we weren't on the same page there. And I can remember more than a few times, and I'll tell this story better someday, but more than a few times where people, uh, because I wasn't that interested in Bon Jovi and Motley Crue, assuming that my music taste was too soft, and I would just politely tell them, listen, I'm, I'm harder core than thou. Don't make me go there. I know better than to play the music that I love in the store, because a lot of the music that I love is simply not fit for public consumption. It's so much harder than a band like Whitesnake, that it makes you wonder why Whitesnake isn't in the easy listening section. But it's tough when you're working with somebody who their music taste is all about, Whitesnake and Bon Jovi, and yours is not. In this case, though, some of the differences of musical taste was because I didn't have a tremendous amount of steam for Milli Vanilli. Even before the Milli Vanilli scandal rose questions about whether the people that you saw on the music video were actually the band or not. It just wasn't my type of music. Or... I wasn't that into R and B at the time I mentioned before that at this stage in my early in my managing career and record store, I was getting into rap. It was a place where I was beginning to focus, but having somebody who was judging me because I wasn't already there. Yeah. That didn't help much. So being a black man who had a family was married, but also was clearly having some sort of gender issues of sorts essentially was judging me. I think in large part because I was white because I was Christian, I think he just made an assumption that that we weren't going to get along because he had a stereotypical idea of what a white 20-something, you know, middle class Christian man would be into, and he had enough evidence to suggest that it wasn't the same stuff he was into. I didn't like Rod Stewart. I didn't like Rick Astley. It's actually not true. I liked old Rod Stewart, Rod Stewart up to maybe 1976 to 1977. But his Rod Stewart enthusiasm really picked up with Do You Think I'm Sexy and only ventured back as far as maybe Tonight's the Night and The Killing of Georgie. He was a, a big fan of the danceable Rod Stewart. And we could agree on a few things. We could agree on the, uh, the album that had hot legs on it, uh, Footloose and Fancy Free or whatever that was, because I really had a, a lot of esteem for the ballad um, I Was Only Joking, which was probably the song he hated most on the record. The thing that frustrated me, though, was at no point in my conversations with him was it about the customer. I was on the side of town that didn't have dance clubs. I was on the side of town that was predominantly you know, white, middle class, country, hair metal, heavy metal. We did have rap fans because at that point in time, late 80s, early 90s, you had rap fans all over the world. I mean, There wasn't a market where there wasn't a rap presence. But if a new album by the group Sounds of Blackness came out, I was making sure we had enough because I wanted one, but I didn't have any illusions that that was going to be my best-selling album. And I can remember one really clear point of conflict between us, and it was one of the points where heated words were exchanged because I would seen the initial orders for the uh, Tales from the Punchbowl album by Primus and compared them to... Uh, Rod Stewart's latest release, I forget what it was called, Spanner in the Works, or something like that. And we'd gotten three times as much of the Rod Stewart album as we did of the Primus record, Uh, getting maybe only nine CDs in stock on the initial delivery. Well, I already had nine names of people who'd given me their name and number to make sure I held a copy for them so they could pick it up the first day. We were the kind of store that when Metallica's Black Album came out, sold 180 pieces before lunch. That's who we were. We weren't the kind of store that was going to sell 180 pieces of any album by Rod Stewart or Van Morrison or anybody else tapping into that adult, you know, that adult female audience. In an entire year, we weren't going to move a new release by Rod Stewart. And this district supervisor had intervened with the buying staff to ramp up the numbers on Rod Stewart up to 33 or 34 and ramp down the numbers on Primus. And he got in the way of the emergency order that I tried to send. I wasn't calling up saying, hey, get rid of this Rod Stewart. I can't sell it. You give it to me, I'll try to make it work. We'll play it in the store. We'll we'll work it. But for heaven's sakes, give me the Primus. Give me the other release. Give me the thing that my customers are telling me they want. Give me the thing that they're lining out the door to receive. And he wouldn't let it happen. He had a cult of personality theory. He had a notion that my love of the group Primus and the fact that my love for Rod Stewart had waned was largely responsible for this customer reaction but the demographics of town would have told you a different story the country clubs were on the other side of town the middle-aged listener was on the other side of town we didn't have that fan where we were we were selling more country music than r&b music we were selling equal numbers of heavy metal and rap we were selling more alternative and pop and rock than the rest of the store combined that's just who we were And I found his decision to interfere with the delivery of more Primus to cover the emergency order that I knew I was out before the first shipment came to be completely unprofessional. And I called him on it. And when it was all said and done, we sold one piece of the Rod Stewart in the first week, week and a half we had it. We sold nine and out of Primus, eventually got 15 more, sold them completely out, and finally got the 25 to 30 that I was looking for two weeks later. Having given probably a ton of business to other stores in town, mom-and-pop locations, Best Buy, and in some ways maybe introducing some of our customers for the first time to the Best Buy that had opened up a few months earlier because they were looking for this new release. And if they couldn't find it where they expected to find it, at my place, they were going to go find it somewhere else. So why is this the worst boss that I ever had? He interpreted and communicated that conflict as an act of racism. I was being insubordinate because he was a black man. I was being insubordinate because his marriage was not as traditional as my marriage. And that outraged me like you would not believe. In fact, it took all I could muster to not take the bait, lose my temper, and you know unwittingly prove him right by speaking harsh words to him, not over um, any... Not over anything that had to do with his his race or his religion or his sexual orientation, but over his really poor management skills, his poor judgment of characters, poor judgment of people, his complete indifference to the customer. This didn't go well. We finally, at one point, got a visit from his boss, and I thought, okay, you know what? Normally, I don't want to have a conversation about my boss with his boss, especially when I'm unhappy with him. This is not what I want to do. And before I could even decide whether to go there, it got even worse. Yeah, we're we're in a mall store. We have a a kid clientele, especially between the time school lets out and dinner time, and with high number of sales in areas like alternative rock, heavy metal, and rap, and relatively low sales in areas like classical music and easy listening and contemporary Christian. You know, you're going to have a potential shoplifting problem. My boss and his boss instructed me; they wanted us to stop arresting shoplifters. Just let it go. However much inventory you lose, however much control you lose over your assortment, you know, you just have to focus on selling these CD visors, selling the biggest accessory. We've got to deal with this particular software accessory manufacturer, and we want to push those numbers. And as long as you sell the loss leader and maximize the sales contest numbers, then that's going to make up for however much merchandise walks out the door, because we've asked you to be slightly understaffed and we want you to stop taking care of customers. I mean, we want you to take care of the customer in the sense of reading them and pitching them the deal of the day, but we don't necessarily want you taking care of the customers in the sense of taking a genuine interest in what it is they like, what it is they want, what they have in their hands, even to the extent of not being interested if the CD they have in their hands finds a way into their pants. I was led to believe that this was the new company policy, and it may be very suspicious, because the district team leader that i worked with both before and after this guy same person i just got i was on a border town so whenever the districts would get redrawn i would move to being based on the outskirts of you know one major city you know 3 4 hours away from the office of the of the district to being on the outskirts of another different major city being 3 4 hours away so i was either in the heart of the heart of the country where i was the northernmost store in the south I was sort of in the mushy middle there somewhere, but I had heard pretty clearly what the company policy was from the previous district team leader. He was a great communicator. He told me what was going on. He let me see a blank copy, not a filled in copy, but a blank copy of his performance review. How was his performance standards different from mine? What was he being asked to succeed at doing? What could I do to help him succeed? Now he didn't ask me that, but it was obvious from reading the document that the standards were different for him than they were for me. Being bound by a store is a different dynamic than being somebody who jumps from store to store and makes sure that all the stores in the region are progressing appropriately and following guidelines and, and getting the job done. I knew I was not supposed to lose control of my assortment. I knew if you let somebody walk out the door with a particular item, you therefore were never going to sell it. The corporate office was going to perceive that it was still part of your inventory, and you were never going to get replenished on what had been taken unless you could at the very least identify that it was missing and do some sort of formal count to show that the inventory was gone. We weren't just losing the hot new release. It wasn't the people were, you know, stealing, you know, Metallica. I'm sure that happened. I know for a fact they weren't stealing the latest Rod Stewart album, just, you know, the facts are the facts. But a lot of times people were stealing deep catalog, and you can't afford in the latter part of the summer to lose a copy of ACDC's Back in Black. Because you're going to need that extra copy of that particular CD come Christmas time, when teenagers are making their lists for mom and dad and grandma, what they want for Christmas. Led Zeppelin 4 and Back and Black are going to be on that list. And if they're not in the store, because the replenishment systems operated by the company office think it is in the store, well, you've got a major problem. So I knew this guy was full of crap. And it was just a matter of waiting him out. And it finally happened. Finally, at some point, perhaps in one of these reorganizations where they redrew the district line, a layoff occurred, certain districts got collapsed together, certain people simply had to be let go, and he was one of them. I can remember having to make a conscious decision of whether or not it was actually appropriate to stand on my chair and do a little dance or to just let it go. And it wasn't easy for me, because when you devoted you know, sort of yourself, to the success of a company. And when you've focused on trying to make your boss successful, it is unbelievably frustrating when that individual won't let you help. It's crucial to know how your boss is being measured in order to help your boss succeed. Collaboration is me knowing enough about what it is you need so that I can decide on my own or by following your lead as my leader. What are you looking for? Do you need a relief pitcher? Do you need a backbone? Somebody's going to come in and chew up middle relief endings. Are you looking for the closer? Are you looking to make me the starter on something new you want to do? I just need to know that. And it's not enough for you to make a spot judgment about me based on what I look, color of my skin, how I live my personal life outside the office. That, that doesn't work. If you know what it is I like, that's good. That can be powerful. We can leverage that. Now, I'm not saying that you know, I was some sort of superstar. I remember having to get some really hard advice very early on. One of the um, first district team leaders I had when I was in the record stores was, you know, a gay man who I thought really had a great personality and a good way of kind of communicating. He was one of the people that I've worked with who I thought could deliver hard words very well, that it didn't necessarily come down to a matter of conflict. He found a way to speak. Well, again, I think his goal was, I need you to succeed I want you to succeed, and you, you need to know this if you're going to succeed. I remember one time, my very first Christmas, being more than just a little bit intimidated because I had not run a store through a Christmas season yet. I had started in this chain in March, and by the time it got to be September, October, I was now running my own store. So I hadn't been in a mentoring role to see how this particular business worked. And trying to compare it to the movie theater or to the bookstore just doesn't it doesn't play out the movie theater did a lot more cash as a percent of total business but just the flat out the, the amount of business that was coming in in the last couple of weeks before christmas to the record store was pretty eye-opening for me because you have a, some aspects of retail will do a lot of their business and you hear black friday and thanksgiving weekend being really crucially important but in this particular business i was in Black Friday and Thanksgiving weekend were just a really busy weekend. The real money was being made late because this was the kind of location people went to to pick up one more thing, to pick up the last minute thing. We knew that, you know, our aunt and uncle were coming to town. We didn't expect the cousins. We need a gift. What do you do? You go to the record store, you pick up a gift. And so I was preparing for that business by doing some of the most elaborate schedule writing of my entire career now when i was in retail i was an elaborate schedule writer i would schedule not just start of shift and end of shift and break times but cash register assignments who was on which register when they were on the register who was going to the bank when they were going to the bank who's going with them who was going to the trash when that was going to happen everything scheduled in advance even to the sales floor if we had four people on the floor what part of the floor were they in what was their responsibility when they were there who is going to be restocking from understock or top stock and who's covering that section of the store while that person is doing this task. Literally scheduled out in color, highlighter markers, you know, cashier names, cash register numbers, the whole nine yards. And uh, this district team leader pulled me aside and said, you are so busy planning the perfect war that I don't know if you're actually going to get into the battle. Those were good words for me to hear. I had planned at had a great deal of time and effort, a great deal of overtime, you might say, exactly how I wanted things to play out. But having not gone through a Christmas in this particular branch of retail before, I wasn't necessarily prepared for how much improvising you had to do. And by putting it in that sort of analogy, to say, okay, I see what you're doing here. You've got a game plan. You've charted it all out. You're, you're essentially you've, – you've, you've handled this like a military strategist. And the problem that you've got is that you don't know who your enemy is. And first off, not your enemy, it's your customer. But you don't know what you're up against. You haven't seen it before. So I was capable of handling tough words because, again, that was a collaborative piece of information. This was somebody letting me in saying, hey, I've got you in the spot. I know you're the newest. I need you to succeed. Here's what you've got to do. It's not unlike in an audition saying, hey, I want you to play it this time like you're slightly psychotic, just a little bit unhinged. Do it again. Read it for me this time like you've just gotten out of the hospital. You've just woken up. Do it like you're barely asleep. That sort of thing. Once more with feeling, or maybe in this case, once more without a lot of feeling, just wing it. I don't believe I'd ever had a manager give me the direction before to say, don't plan this. You're good enough. Just wing it. There's something inspiring about a supervisor who lets you in and says, here's what I need. I need you to succeed because your success is part of my success. And I need you to understand that my success is part of your success. And I guess my question today is, is all this just obvious? Or do a lot of people simply come in, punch the clock, try to stay out of trouble, and try to get stuff done? Do most of us just come in, do the audition, read the lines, and pray somebody gives us the part? How many of us are doing the job in such a way that we have the audacity to think, if not say it, but to think, you guys got a problem. I'm here to help you out. I want to go with an actor today for my different drummer, and I won't, I don't want to overplay how much Michael Emerson's inspirational words play a role here. But I'm not going with one of the best actors of his generation and the medium that he works. I'm going with one of the best actors who's ever lived. And I think I want to start by talking about the collaborative nature of of this sort of endeavor, this actor-director relationship, this manager-supervisor relationship, by calling out a website called uh, EmpireOnline.com and a feature that they do called Great Actor-Director Partnerships. It actually has the headline, uh, Notable Pairings, um, the 40 Great Collaborations in Movies Between Actor and Director. And the one I'm going to cite is, is not number one. Number one on the list, they've got John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. And number three, Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro. So you're, you're in pretty good shape here in terms of pairings. Uh, they've got some really obvious ones, uh, Tim Burton and Johnny Depp, Billy Wilder and Jack Lemon, and some that I would probably dispute, maybe later we'll feel strongly about it, but Whether I think of uh, Christopher Nolan and Christian Bale as elevating to this level yet, I'm not quite so sure. I would agree with Alfred Hitchcock and Cary Grant, Alfred Hitchcock and Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne and John Ford, and Federico Fellini and Marcello Mastriani, clearly great examples. Derek Jarman and Tilda Swinton's on this list as well, ranked highly in the top ten. Now, the one I want to cite is Toshiro Mifuna and Toshiro's relationship with Akira Kurosawa. And I really like the way the Empire website has worded it. Here's just a little bit of the blurb they've got for this particular notable pairing, the 16 films that Kurosawa and Mifuna did together. What's the secret of their success? Mifuna's quickness and spirit of action contrasted brilliantly with Kurosawa's meticulous approach to filmmaking, making them a team to be reckoned with. Kurosawa's series of films with Mifuna marked the high point in both careers with most of the incredible 16 films they made together regarded as cinema classics. The pair more or less created the wandering warrior archetype in Japanese and world cinema and influenced actors and directors from Clint Eastwood to George Lucas. That's an interesting point. When you look at uh, the notable pairings they mention, Rashomon, Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, Yojimbo, and Sanjuro. I would also toss The Hidden Fortress into that list. With The Hidden Fortress, you've got a key inspiration for what would become the Star Wars film, 1977. For Throne of Blood, you've got a truly inventive Japanese interpretation of the Tragedy Macbeth. It's ground that Kurosawa would cover later, again, with Ron being a version of King Lear. But that would come after the falling out, and these two men stopped working together. Rashomon. has inspired a great deal of things. Probably the most recent example is the film Courage Under Fire, starring uh, Denzel Washington, an attempt to modernize and remake Rashomon. But you also see that that idea of seeing a dramatic or a, a violent episode play out with three or four different witnesses' perspectives, each one having a completely different version of what happened, short of perhaps the crime itself and the individuals involved. Seven Samurai would later become The Magnificent Seven, and this is certainly an archetypal film of its its sort. And Yojimbo and Sanjuro, a couple of uh, samurai films, would literally become the blueprint for Clint Eastwood and Sergio Leone's breakthrough works of The Man With No Name, the Spaghetti Westerns. Going back to the website, were they as good as anyone else? Well, they've ranked them number two all time, so that tells you something. Both men had stellar careers, both inside and outside Japan but it's probably fair to say that they both did the very best work together. Mafuna has said that he was only proud of the films that he did with Kurosawa, while the latter described Mafuna as a kind of talent I had never encountered before in the Japanese film world. I have seen movies that these men have made spanning an incredible distance of time. From maybe 19, maybe the earliest one that I've seen of the work that they did together Coming in the 40s, I've seen Stray Dog, which was released, uh, not their first collaboration, but an early collaboration, released in 1949, uh, followed by Rashomon in 1950. I've got a gap in my viewing where maybe I own the film, but I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I'm going to cite the ones that I own or that I have seen. Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, The Hidden Fortress, High and Low, which I'll come back to in a minute, Red Beard. Sanjuro, Yojimbo, so The Bad Sleep Well, Uh, a large number of these films. Now, a lot of the reason I own these films is because of Kurosawa. I am essentially a director's filmmaker in terms of what I look for when I go to a movie, more so than an actor's filmgoer. But when it comes down to picking from the group of acting talent, there's a reason why I own more of the collaborations with Mifuna than I do any other actor appearing in films by Kurosawa. In fact, of all the great Kurosawa films, probably there's only one or two, Ron and Derzu Uzala, that I think I esteem as highly as the ones that were done in this collaboration between these two men. Part of the reason I'm going to cite Mafuna, though, is because of High and Low. When you think about all the movies that I've just mentioned, Rashomon, Yojimbo, The Seven Samurai, I don't think High and Low is the first one most people would think. But it's the movie that I saw that first made me think, my goodness, this really is an unbelievable actor. Because the same person who, in some ways, performed very flamboyantly in movies like Throne of Blood, is here extremely understated and playing not a medieval action saga or even a morality play or a post-war Japan detective looking for his gun and trying to hunt down a killer and stray dog. In this one, he's a businessman, and most of the plot is extremely understated. And all of it really relies upon the power of his central performance. Now, I'm going to spoil just a little bit of high and low here, because I don't think I can give the movie the credit that it deserves and talk about Mafuna as an actor the way I want to without giving up just the first twist. Now, again, it's a two and a half hour movie and a police procedural in every sense of the word. In a lot of the ways, I think the French film by Clouseau called um, Diabolique kind of gave whoever... Ev- eventually can be called the creator of the Columbo TV series, planted that seed, gave him the first glimpse of the kind of detective that would later become sort of an icon in Columbo. When you look to the Law & Order TV series, the multiple series of Law & Order, not so much CSI where it's really about what's going on behind the scenes and in the lab and all that, but where a crime has been committed and the police are involved and a killer is being tracked down. That's sort of procedural. High & Low is an excellent example of it. But the first big twist comes about 30, 35 minutes in, and what happens is the very beginning, the first reel, so to speak, is Nafuna playing a executive in a shoe company who has finally decided he's making his big move. He's going to buy out his partners. He's going to take over this venture, and he's going to secure his family's future no matter what the cost is to his his peers, because in his mind, his peers have missed the big opportunity. They haven't been good collaborators. They haven't grasped the vision. None of them in this sort of conservative um, board of directors of a major manufacturing company have had the insight to take the necessary risks. And Mafuna's character has seen that, that that's the opportunity. He's seen the future. He's ready to mass produce. He's ready to turn the corner and stop doing things in a traditional way. And they've stymied him every step of the way, but now he has finally put together the capital he needs and the time is right to buy them out and take over. Literally the same day that he reveals this to them, when he's basically ready to write the check and seal the deal, his son gets kidnapped and he is faced with the, really the non-choice of saying, do I save my son? Or do I accept what is likely to be complete financial ruin? Because now that I've tipped my hand and I've told my my peers, my now my now enemies, what my game plan is, what I'm going to do. You know, what happens if I don't have the money anymore? Because I have to take a huge chunk of that money and pay a ransom to get my son back. Now I can't buy out the company. And very surely, I'm going to be the one who gets bought out or tossed out, right? That's not the twist, though. The twist in high and low is what happens... When 30 minutes into the movie, you find out that the kidnappers grabbed the wrong child. They intended to kidnap the son of this really important and powerful businessman, but instead they've kidnapped the son of his chauffeur. And now he faces the same decision. Does he go bankrupt? Does he see his entire dream of turning his company around and changing the way manufacturing is done in Japan and let that whittle away because he's spending his own money that he may never get back. And even if he does get it back, he won't get it back in time. Not to save his own son, but to save his chauffeur's son. And it is in that plot element, right smack dab in the middle of this movie, where even the police begin to have doubts about what he's going to do when it comes time to make a ransom drop. And when a ransom drop doesn't happen the way it should, is it because the the ransomers got spooked? Or is it because this guy has pulled some sort of double cross and is willing to sacrifice the son of his employee, in order to protect his own financial future. High and Low is a brilliantly understated film, but driven primarily by a brilliantly understated performance by somebody who had, perhaps in the minds of a lot of viewers, been able to hide behind his sword. Because in some of these iconic roles where he's playing a samurai or a rebel or a Han Solo-type character coming to rescue a princess, he's got the action to drive it. He's got the costume. He's got the the traditional uh, strength of the character to drive it. But in this case, he's just an average, ordinary rich man in Japan. And he finds things in the plot in some ways by being, as Michael Emerson described, the handyman who was there to perhaps push and challenge Kurosawa, to show Kurosawa things that Kurosawa hadn't perhaps even asked for yet, and to deliver the goods in such a way that Akira Kurosawa would come along years later and actually drop a quote in place and say that uh, Mafuna was the kind of talent that I had never encountered before in the Japanese film world. I would take it a step further. Mafuna is perhaps one of the kinds of talent that any director working in any country in any language had not encountered before. Now, his work as an actor did not translate perfectly into American cinema. And obviously, for some people, this will be a completely unknown figure. I have a vague idea of the bandit and Rashomon or one of the seven samurai. It's not hard to conjure up an image of what, he, of what he looks like in some of those iconic roles. We probably would never, in the American consciousness, think of him in the role that he played in High and Low. Part of that is because his efforts to work in American cinema were not all that successful. He appeared in the movie Midway. His lines were dubbed. He appeared in the TV miniseries Shogun. But... If you'd never seen or heard of Mifuna before, it wouldn't surprise me. But if you decided to pick just one film to check him out, you could go with the classics. You could go with Rashomon. You could go with Seven Samurai. But in some ways, I would recommend seeing the other side of this actor by looking at a movie like High and Low. It's a movie, to to me, that is born out of the idea that collaboration works. And that when a director has established himself with hit after hit after hit, In films that are more action oriented or set for in a more medieval time, it is possible for two people, one, the director, one, his employee to work together so well and so seamlessly because each one understands what the other one needs to be successful. Do we have that today? Do we have employees working for bosses who are just as interested in what their boss has to have to be successful as they are in following orders? Do we have bosses who are as interested in making sure that their employees are part of the bigger thing they've got going on and not just somebody who needs to be told what to do? You see the results in collaborations like Mifuna and Kurosawa, two men who candidly in the years after their collaborations have acknowledged that something was going on there that they weren't really able to repeat with anyone else. I won't pretend to offer advice on what to do when your boss is more interested in the clothes you wear or what you do on a Saturday night than what you can do by working closely with him or her on making the most of whatever business you're working on together. I didn't have success in that area, but I have repeatedly had success in areas where two people set their egos aside, let the venture that they're engaging in be defined more by the customer and less by the titles before or after their name, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Even in a volunteer situation where somebody is a paid staff member running a nonprofit organization and the people that they're relying on are essentially not just employees at will. They're not employees at all. They can come and go as they please. They're volunteers. You're not going to be successful if those people don't feel like they are part of this thing. They've got to feel like they're part of the profession, even if in some level they're factually not. Because it is inside the collaboration that we see great art. I would also suggest that it's inside this kind of collaboration that we see great commerce. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. And there is a place for different opinions on the website at http colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. Comments are enabled with the show notes. by Kevin the